I'll pray. Father, speak to us about your sovereignty. Speak to us about your will for our lives. Help us to see the early church and how you are completely involved in it through the working of your Holy Spirit, pointing people to Jesus Christ, planting the church in areas that will hear it, areas that won't, governments that don't like it, um, how they treat, how the governments then treated the Christians, and how we are to take um, the context of that time and apply it to our lives. Father, we need the Holy Spirit to open us up completely to you so we can understand the Word of God, be excited about the Word of God. And Lord, that we would, uh, we would live it out. We wouldn't just, it just wouldn't be head knowledge, but it would be, um, it would go straight to the heart and it would just change who we are in you. So when we walk out of here tonight, me included, that we would have a little better understanding of who you are in your character, in your love, and how passionate you are about the church. And so, Father, help us to wield ourselves to the Holy Spirit, to listen to it, and to speak over this church, protect this church, and give us our mission daily, what we are to do. And this is a mission that you've called us to do, is to teach the doctrine, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And so the saints are sitting in here, the church is here, present, just equip us to be able to go out into our work centers, our neighborhoods, the schools, where we're at, wherever we're at, proclaim your name, but have correct doctrine of who you are as well. So to speak through me, in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 12, it's a pretty eventful passage, like every other chapter in the book of Acts, it's one big thing, followed by another big thing, followed by another big thing. Remember why this, this letter was written? This is a doctor who's writing. He's a doc, Dr. Luke. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke, or according to Luke. And he's writing to a particular man named Theophilus. And Theophilus is a Greek man. He's probably Luke's master. His, Luke's probably like a bondservant or a slave. Not like maybe what you think of and when you think of American slavery and all that times. People would work underneath people and those people would pay them and give them a good job. And Luke probably fit underneath this man named Theophilus. And for whatever reason, he was writing to Theophilus not only with the Acts but also in Luke. And he was trying to tell him what has been happening, what's going on. So more than likely, Theophilus has said, Luke, go out. Go do what you're called to do. Report back to me. This letter that you're reading, the book of Acts, and the Gospel of Luke, was written to a man named Theophilus. And because of that interaction between those two, we have this wonderful letter, the history of the church, um, just given to us, the early church. But it's a, it's a, it's a letter that's really just laying it out there in a convincing manner to Theophilus so he would understand what's happening. And here we are 2,000 years later reading this beautiful letter to this man and we can gain so much knowledge about who God is and what God was doing to plant the church. But we also can see that the story's not over and he wants us to take the same principles out of the book of Acts and apply them to our everyday life. So this letter is really written to all of us in particular, so we can understand who God is 
and see his passion for the church. So in chapter, chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass, harass some from the church. The church is prohibited from proclaiming the gospel. They're not allowed to share the gospel at this point. It's illegal. So when they're going out sharing the gospel, they're under persecution, especially around Jerusalem. This is about where we're at in 12. It's about 10 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. We've seen one person martyred, and that's what we know. Not Stephen. But now things just start opening up. And it's because of a brutal dictator, Herod Agrippa I, it's going to start unleashing this fury on the church, and it causes the church just to scatter. And I know it's confusing for a lot of people um, to... Maybe I can get this up in a second. We could show some, some maps here. It's confusing because there's about five Herods in the Bible. Who's this Herod, and what, what about the Herod when Jesus was born? Who are we talking about here? So I want to just sort of give a history real fast so you guys can understand it. And sometimes when we can see maps and we can see pictures, it helps us to be able to understand it a little easier when we can picture this thing. And if this comes up, I'll, I'll show it. If not, I'm, I'm totally fine where we're at. I'm going to go ahead and press. Whoa. This technology thing is awesome. There we go. Herod the Great. Was the, he was the king, the ruler of the land of Jerusalem during Jesus' time. And he had control and dominion over what you see in the pink, all up there. He had an enormous control, enormous power all throughout the land. As you can see here, from Jerusalem or whatever. This was the man who built the temple, the second temple. He tried to please the Jews. He was great with architecture. He really built the land up. He really did. But he was brutal at the same time. And he was the man who talked to the wise men, and he's trying to get Jesus to come so he could kill him. And he's the one that killed all the children, the, the, the males in Bethlehem. Well, his descendants were not much better than him. He died, like, not soon after Jesus was born. And then he had three sons in particular he was trying to pass on um, his legacy to. And so they would rule. So the land was split, what you see here, and it was divided so then you have Herod Antipas, Philip the Tetrarch, and Archelaus. And green, right here, the majority, was Archelaus, but he was brutal, absolutely brutal to the church. He was only in power for about two years, and then Rome was like, I'm done with him, and they put Pontius Pilate in place there. So Pontius Pilate is the ruler over in the green. And then you had... Uh, the, the pink is controlled by nobody, but Herod Antipas, the one who killed John the Baptist, he is in the yellow, and then Philip is in the, is in the orange up there. And for around 30 years, a little bit more than 30 years, they ruled the area. Well, there was another man that's not mentioned in Scripture, another Herod, or Herod Aristobulus, 
he had a child named Agrippa. And when these all went away, all these rulers went away, uh, let's just stick with this. All this land that you see, except for the pink, was controlled by Herod Agrippa I. And when we're in Acts chapter 12, Herod Agrippa has all control of the land. He has an enormous amount of power. And so when he is wielding all this persecution all over the church and the land, it's going all throughout the land of Israel, and the church is hiding. And he's stretching out his hand to persecute, it says. This is Herod. And the church was bunked up in these rooms and praying and on the run, but it was causing the church to spread out. This persecution was causing the church to spread out. So here we are, Herod Agrippa I. Later on in Acts, we're going to get to it, Herod Agrippa II. He has a child, and then it all starts to make sense. So the early church is really under rule of Herod Agrippa I and and Herod Agrippa II. Right here is Herod Agrippa I. He's the, great, he is the grandson of Herod the Great when Jesus was born. There's like five Herods. It's, it can kind of get confusing, right? But when you can see a picture of it up there, it can help, it help you understand it as you're reading the Scripture. It said that he stretched out his hand to harass some in the church, and then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Why was he doing this? Well, Herod Agrippa's mom was Jewish. She was from the Maccabean people. His dad wasn't, obviously, but his mom wasn't. So he had this Jewish heritage about him. The Jews looked at him as kind of like his half-breed, like we don't really trust you. But for whatever reason, he tried to appease them. It's kind of like his father did in a sense. And so he starts persecuting the church, and then the Jews start liking him. So he's just like, let's do some more of it. But then he takes James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, and he kills him. History says that he was sawn in half lengthwise. This is a man who was in the inner circle. He wasn't just the 12, one of the 12 disciples. He was in the inner circle. He was one of the three that saw Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. He was there at the Garden of Gethsemane. And here, this man, 10 years after Jesus' crucifixion, is sawn in half lengthwise. Where's God, right? So people start wanting to question, and what do you think this did to the church? Do you think this impacted the church? One of the top guys had just been martyred like this, with the leader, the ruler of the land, you better believe it would. Could you imagine if that happened in our context? Could you imagine that? It would just, it would shake us. It would absolutely shake us. And this is what the church was facing during this time. And, and look at three. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he was trying to please the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Normally, what they would do is they would chain some, uh, like a, a really bad offender of the law, they would chain him up two guards, 
for whatever reason, they chain Peter up with four guards. And they go to every three or four hour shifts. So every three or four hours for this whole week of Passover week, they had Peter in prison, chained up, and you knew he was going to die, but they just can't kill somebody on Passover. That's why they hurry up and stab Jesus in the side. They try to make, him, to make Jesus, um, uh, they needed him to die before that week started. And that's what they're waiting for that week to pass now, about 10 years later. They're waiting for that week to pass so they can kill Peter. And they have him just chained up, four guards apiece on him. Verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Constant prayer, note that. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping. So Peter's about ready to get killed, and he's sleeping. He has this peace that surpasses all understanding. He's about ready to get killed like a savior, like James. Who knows how he's going to get killed? And he has this peace about him that he's sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. So Peter is there sleeping, and the angel of the Lord, it says, had to strike him in the side to wake him up, and he stands up, and his chains fall off, right? And then the angel said to him, gird yourself, tie on your sandals, and so he did, and he he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he's having this conversation with the angel of the Lord. That's crazy. This is crazy to me. Just even picture or imagine this. And so he went out and he followed him and did not know that he was done, what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So he doesn't even know. This is like too surreal for Peter. He's like, am I dreaming this? Is this a vision? Is this all too surreal? And he doesn't even know really what's happening. And it says, when they were past the first and second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them in its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from them. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, so now he, like, he comes to himself. He's like, what in the world just happened? Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. And so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, John Mark, where many were gathered together praying. So why do you, what do you think they were praying for? For Peter's deliverance, right? That's what it kind of says. They, I mean... Peter was in prison, but they, they constantly offered prayers to God for him. The church was constantly in prayer, and here he finds them. They're in prayer. So you think this would be just a great welcome. Praise the Lord. Like, Peter's out there, right? But that doesn't happen. And so, 
And when Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. Uh, this, is com- this is comical. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. So you understand the persecution that's happening? Peter just, he just left maximum security prison. Do you think he's trying to hide? He's looking around every corner? I mean, Herod, the ruler of the land, has his number. He wants him dead. He's about ready to kill him, and it pleases the Jews. That's what Herod wanted. And then he gets up there, the house of Mary, knocks on the door. Rhoda comes. She doesn't even open the door. She's so excited, she turns around. What do you think Peter's doing at this point? Like, he wants to, like, Rhoda, Rhoda. What are you doing? I, just, I don't know what, what's happening. It doesn't really share this, right? But I would love to have been there. And when she recognizes Peter's voice, it said that she was so glad that she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. So she runs in and announces to everybody who's praying for Peter's release. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she, came, she kept insisting that it was so. And poor Peter's still standing out there, trying to hide. So they said, it's an angel. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. So they're praying for his release. And when he gets released, Rhoda tells him, he's like, you're beside yourself. You're crazy. You're a crazy woman. They didn't even have a faith. They were praying, but there was really, what faith was behind their prayer? There wasn't much faith. They should have said, well, praise the Lord. He, he answered our prayer, and they run out. But they didn't do that. Oh, how many times do we do this? Where we pray, we pray, and we pray. And, and then when something happens, are you like, you're kidding me. It actually worked. That just happened to us, my wife and I, about three weeks ago. We're trying to figure out, for, for some of you, you don't know, I'm moving to Uganda in a year. We're going to a training for like five and a half months where both my wife and I need to attend that training. But we have three little kids. They've never been homeschooled before. They've never been to Uganda before. So we're trying to figure out, well, how in the world can they be homeschooled and we attend the training at the same time? It's all in the same location, but how does this thing work? And so we're praying. And then after our Uganda trip, we got back in, in March, and after our Uganda trip, there just so happened to be a girl on the, on the team who heard from the Lord that she's supposed to come to Uganda to help us with our children. And we didn't prod her. It was the Lord. And when she told me, I was like, you're crazy. Are you serious? And we're praying the whole time that the Lord would provide somebody. And when she said, I'm like... Are you serious? Like, who moves to, who just decides that for five and a half months they're going to pick up, leave their job, move to Uganda to homeschool my crazy kids? That's an act of God. We were praying for that. But that's, to us, to you, that might not be a big deal. But to me and my wife, that's like a huge answer to a prayer. It's a gigantic answer to a prayer that gives me encourage and faith to step out and more. But I got to be honest with you, when she said, I'm feeling called to come and, su- and support you and whatever, and she just so happens to be a school teacher, I didn't add. 
I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm astonished when she tells us that. But praise the Lord. You know, when you step out, you see God sometimes. But here's the beautiful thing. Jesus has grace over these guys. These people praying that don't believe. He has grace over us. When we, when we think something and he does it regardless or whatever, and we just feel like, okay, where was our faith? His grace is sufficient. But motioning, I'm, I'm in 17. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said to them, go and tell these things to James and the brethren. And he departed and he went to another place. So he has to be so quiet because they don't want anybody to hear because you get thrown in prison if you get caught just for being a believer in Jesus Christ. You'll get caught. You'll get put in prison and you'll die. And so he's like, shh, shh. Tells them everything and then he leaves. And so he says, now go tell James and the brethren, and he departed and went to another place. So clearly right here, church, right here we see some form or fashion, James. And this is not James, the one that was just sawn in half. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, that we have the book of James. It was written by him. He is the leader of the church of Jerusalem. Peter is not the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Everything is starting to transfer over to James, and we start to see that. We see it in Acts chapter 15. We see it with Paul. He says, I went back, and I talked to James, and then everybody else, always linking James to be the leader of the church. And a lot of people think, well, Peter's the leader of the church. And I know our Catholic brothers and sisters, you could be in here right now. The Scripture says completely the opposite. Please read it, that James is, is the leader of the church at this point. It's clear as you continue to go through the book of Acts. And then in, in, chapter, in verse 18, and then as soon as it was day, there was no small stirring among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. So now the day he's supposed to be executed, he's gone. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. Now he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. So Peter's on the loose. Herod kills the guards. Everybody's on the, on the hunt for the apostles. James, one of the, one of the three, is killed. They tried to kill Peter. The church is kind of hunkered into these upper rooms, and they're praying. And people are coming to Christ in, in droves, actually, if you look from Pentecost on. A lot of people are coming to Christ, but the government and this, the persecution is just coming down upon them. And here we have it now, pretty much from now on, Peter is out of the picture. We see him one more time in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. Everything's going to start shifting to Paul here. Everything's going to start shifting to Paul. But this right here is an account that is only a miracle. It's only by the hand of God that Peter can be delivered from prison. Only by the hand of God could this happen. And we know people, Eric and I and some other people, we know people, and maybe you do too, a man named Peter Shue. We call him Uncle Peter. He was one of the, the first house church starters in China in the early 70s. He's been in prison over 10 years of his life because he's a Christian. 
The underground church is consistently persecuted, constantly persecuted in China. There are thousands of Christians right now in prison just because they won't renounce their faith. That's in China. It's well documented. It's an atheistic country. And if you have that faith, a Christian faith, the underground faith, there is the church that says, hey, you can be a church, you can call yourself the Christian church. They call it the three-self church. But you can't say everything. You can't say Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and he's the only way to salvation. You can't really say that in that church. But the underground church is exploding, and they're highly persecuted. Today, they say 15 to 30,000 people every single day in China are coming to Christ. 15 to 30,000 people. Now, 50,000 babies are born a day in China. That's 1.5 billion people, man. It takes a lot to keep that population going, right? 30,000, 15,000 people a day coming to Christ. And knowing if they get caught, they're persecuted. There's a story, and I hear it from Peter. He was there, first-hand account of something extremely similar to this. If you read the book, The Heavenly Man, you can get pretty much the full story. So you have this man named Brother Yoon. They call him the Heavenly Man. He was put in prison. He's brutalized in prison as well. And Peter Shu is there, the man that we know who lives in the Black Forest now. He actually lives here. He doesn't speak any English. He's just always Chinese. He's about 75 years old. He has spoken at our church before. And one day, they had beaten Brother Yoon so bad he couldn't walk. And for months and months, Peter, Uncle Peter, Peter Shu had to carry him around. Everywhere he went, his legs were black and blue from hips down. He couldn't walk. He was literally pretty much paralyzed almost. He couldn't walk. He was so beaten. And then one day, he's laying in his cell because that's all he could do. And Uncle Peter is there with him. And this is in the 90s. And for whatever reason, the Lord came upon Peter Shu, Uncle Peter, and said, tell Brother Yoon he needs to go. This is a maximum security prison that he's in, like a level five equivalent to, in the U.S. And he says, the Lord said, you need to walk out. And so Brother Yoon, legs are healed, walks out of the prison, starts opening doors, and just starts walking out of the prison, past guards, everything. And he gets to the front door of these huge iron gates, and they just open, and there's a taxi cab waiting for him, and he just gets in, and he goes. And all these people in prison are looking out the window, and they see this. And I asked Uncle Peter, I was like, that really happened? And he can kind of fill in the details. He just starts getting all giddy. And he's like the most humble man in the world. It actually happened. And we read that story, and so many people discount that story. And we read this, and we have to believe this. And China is a persecuted country, just like Jerusalem was at this time. And these things are happening in the world. I tell you that to encourage you that this is this stuff that today that you see when you're reading this, actually things like that still do happen. And I had a first-hand account. I'm sitting here talking to Uncle Peter about it. And he just, just like, it just makes him glow and smile because he remembers that day how the Lord delivered him. The Lord delivered him. When he said, he's like, Brother Yun, you got to get out of this prison. You just got to walk out, the Lord told me. He said he was so afraid he just went and he hid in a corner for a while because he, he knew that if he got caught telling him this, he's going to get persecuted and beat down even more, you know. And then he got up, he got the courage to get up, and he saw him just kind of walking out of the prison. Crazy. That's crazy. And that actually happens. 
to this day. And when I read this, I'm just like, oh, man, just remarkable. So now Herod, in, in verse 20, had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And when they had came to him with one accord and having made Blastus, the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. Josephus, the historian, mentions this as well. Josephus, remarkable, he's a Jewish historian, not even a Christian man, and he, he backs up all these accounts. He said, on that day, Herod, Herod came out in this coat that had like silver threads, and it just glowed in the sunlight, just silver threads glowing in the sunlight. And so you had these people of Sidon and Tyre, and I have another uh, map here so you can kind of see where I'm at. And so I'm going to zoom in so you can kind of see it. So here's Caesarea, right here in the middle, Caesarea, and this is around the location. So Sidon is right around where Caesarea is, and if you go down to Joppa, that's where um, Titan is. And these people from this region are having a problem with food, and so they really look to Herod to provide them food, and so they start buttering him up. And he's in Caesarea at this point right now, and... And after he arrives at this theater in, the, in, these, in this crazy outfit, the people kept shouting, the voice of God and not a man. And immediately, so these people are saying, you're God, you're God. And he was just kind of probably just taking this in. Yeah, I like this. These people need what I have. They're calling me God. They're really buttering me up here. They didn't realize it. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Josephus, this Jewish historian, actually writes about this. So look it up. You can go online and just look it up in his writing. Say, Josephus, Herod, Agrippa, dying of worms. And you can actually read about this in history. But the word of God grew and multiplied. So here we are in Caesarea now, right up there in the middle. And here is Caesarea. Beautiful, beautiful location. Um, really is beautiful. Herod's palace would be right here in the middle. And this theater, which is here in the back where you see that arrow is, right? This, this theater. And here's Eric at the theater last year when he were in Jerusalem. He was actually at this theater where Herod was struck down with worms and died. Our church was right there. And this actually happened. Josephus recorded it. Why? Because he took God's glory. And because that, I mean, did it, the reason why I went into so much detail about how powerful he was as a ruler and how many people feared him, when a man like that dies of worms eating him inside and out, that's a big deal. And it happened all right here in this theater. Just remarkable. In this beautiful setting in this location, everybody saw it happen. And the word went out everywhere. And even... Outside of the scripture, it validates that this happened. And the word multiplied. It went out. Churches started being planted because of what God did right here. Remarkable scene. This is another scene of the side view of, uh, of the theater right here. I mean, this is a beautiful location. I want to go here. 
Isn't this beautiful? So he gets struck down. The church starts multiplying. The word goes out. And we kind of start concluding this chapter here. And then it, is, it kind of goes into the next thing it says in 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission. And he also took with him John, whose surname was Mark. So let's kind of go back and just dissect this real fast as we close. What we see here is almost a, like a mirror. This chapter, you can, it's like a, it's a split. It's weird what happens. It looks like man is in control. Herod's in control. He kills one apostle, saws him in half. And then you keep on going, and then it flips. You realize, no, God's in control the whole time. He lets Peter out of prison and then takes down the man that was in control to begin with. So what Herod thought, he was in control. Everybody was afraid of Herod, and really the whole time God was in control. And when you start thinking about, well, James was sawed in half lengthwise. Where was God? He was, he was there. He allowed it to happen. That's called the sovereignty of God. And some people have a tough time with that. Why would he allow Peter to be set free and James to be martyred in such a way like that? Well, we don't see the full big picture for one. And James just beat Peter to heaven anyways. It's a brutal way to die. But Peter didn't die much better. History says he was died crucified upside down on a cross. Pretty much all the apostles were martyred. They just couldn't get John. They tried boiling him in oil and everything. They couldn't do it. So we see God in control. We see James die. We see Peter released miraculously. It talks about the sovereignty of God. He allows some things to happen while he allows other things not to happen. He's in control the whole entire time. And when man starts taking God's glory from him, boom, he goes down. And he goes down in a remarkable way. Worms eat him inside and out. And anytime we ever try to take the glory of God, watch out. That's what happened to Moses. That's why he couldn't even get into the, the promised land. Because he struck that rock the second time when he wasn't supposed to. And he said, shall we bring forth water out of this rock? Like he had anything to do with it. He was just supposed to be obedient, allow God to do his thing. And he was like, shall Aaron and I bring forth water out of this rock and hits the rock two times and boom, the water comes out. And why was that punishment upon Moses so harsh? Because he was taking the glory away from God. And our faithful brother Moses for so long endured with him for so long. And it punished him for trying to take the glory away. Anytime that we think that we are better than what we really are and we try to take all, the, all these accolades and put them upon ourselves and think that we're better than what we really are. We're taking God's glory away from him because he created us for a purpose and for a reason. And he wants to get the glory in and through us, and that's what we are designed for. That's our purpose in life, to give him glory. And next thing you know, if we just start saying, look, I just want people to think of me this way. I want them to think of me that I have, I'm absolutely amazing for whatever, whatever reason. And you're not giving the glory to God. Well, what happens I hope you don't get eaten by worms. But you see what happens to people. You sure do. 
And also this, this, this tells me that we are to be a praying church. We are to be a praying church. I'm sure the church was praying for James. I'm sure they were. And God did not deliver James. That doesn't mean that God did not answer their prayers. It just means he had a different plan. But they were in relationship. And then they were in prayer over Peter and his release. And then God, and he say they were all in prayer. And God delivered them. So sometimes God will answer our prayer, our heart's desire at least. And sometimes he won't because he understands the picture. But the point is that we're in relationship with our Heavenly Father. We're constantly in prayer. We're constantly in prayer. And this right here says that the early church was definitely in prayer for Peter. And somehow God partnered with him and honored it. And they were released. The book of Acts is a crazy story. I bet Luke, when he was writing this to the office, was like, man, I hope he believes this. Is he really going to believe this account of Herod getting eaten by worms and Peter being released from prison? Is he going to believe this? Are we going to believe it? We need to believe it. Things like this happen. And when we step out in faith and we step out to fulfill God's passion, and that's to bring people into a relationship with our Heavenly Father through Jesus, and we go out and the power of the Holy Spirit to do that, we may have the privilege of seeing God move in kind of a miraculous way. But if all you do is sit around and just take in and take in and take in, and you do not go out and step out in faith and apply what you learn, you're probably not going to experience God the way you want to. And faith, guys, sometimes just does not make sense. Because if it made sense, it probably wouldn't be called faith. Faith is a Miracles happen when you step out in faith. And only God can be attributed to that miracle. So as we take this passage of Scripture and try to pull something from it, we should be a praying church. We are to recognize God and His sovereignty. Just because He doesn't answer your prayer doesn't mean He's there, doesn't mean He's absent. This means He understands the full picture. And there's times where He'll miraculously heal you, He'll reveal Himself to you in a in a just a marvelous way through prayer. But stay strong. We are on the same mission the early church was. We have a mission, and that's to reach people for Christ. Amen? Amen? We're going to do communion tonight, and this is to be taken as an act of remembrance of Christ his broken body and his shed blood. And as we take it, we don't take it just because we are Christians and we take it. We take it to remember him and what he has done. It brings us into a deeper relationship with him. And Paul says we are to do it often. And so we always give it up on Wednesdays. We'll do it once on the weekend as well per month. And it's for you to think about his body being broken for you and his blood being shed for you. And as a church, as we take it corporately, just an act of worship in and of itself.